continuing today in our study through the Gospel of Luke, today in uh, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. We're going to look today at the visits of Mary and Elizabeth, and also the Magnificat, uh, reading verses 39 through 56. Now, as you're turning there, you can find that on page 856 of the Cart Bibles, if you picked one up on the way in. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. Uh, let me give you a heads up that we are going to read this entire passage, uh, and the major focus of our study today is really going to be on that first, uh, often overlooked section. Now, the reason we're doing that is because just about nine months ago, we read this entire passage and we focused almost solely on the Magnificat. And so if you were with us on Christmas Eve, you have heard some of this, and I tell you just so that you're not unaware and you're not worried if the majority of our time passes and we haven't gotten past uh, verse 45, but I also tell you uh, so that in case the next 35 minutes passes and you feel that you've been shortchanged, you can find that other sermon online. Uh, I assure you we have covered this ground already, but that does mean that today we are not going to look at some very big important themes in this song. Uh, themes like this great reversal that Mary will talk about where the Lord raises up those who are lowly and he casts down the mighty from their thrones. And, and this is a theme that we'll see again, by the way, in Luke's gospel. And, and we'll see it next time probably on the lips of Christ in Luke chapter 6. Uh, we also won't look at God's covenant faithfulness to Abraham and to his offspring forever. That is uh, kind of a big deal in the New Testament and kind of a big deal when you're looking at Mary and who she understands Jesus to be. So I, I just say that at the beginning. We won't look at those things today, uh, but if you really have a burning desire to hear the rest of that, uh, it's, it's on the website, and you can find that. Uh, but today, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39 and reading to the end of verse 36. Let's uh, go again to the Lord in prayer before we read his word. O Lord, our gracious God and Father, God of wisdom, God of might, God of condescending mercy and grace, thank you for stooping low to speak to us in words that we can understand. And thank you that you give us your spirit to break up the stony, hard ground of our hearts so that we would hear and receive your word with joy. Gracious Lord, we pray that you would do just that. Allow us to receive with meekness your implanted word that our eyes would be drawn to Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we would know what it is to call upon you to say with Mary that he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is your name. Oh, Lord, put a song of praise in our hearts as we read your word today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when I heard the sound of, I'm sorry, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment 
of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Well, it was uh, about seven and a half years ago that my wife and I sat down together for the first time as new parents among another small gathering of young parents. It was at some seminary function. I think it was a birthday party for a, a one-year-old or something like that. And because we now had children, we were invited, and, and all the other couples were there, and our oldest son had just been born. And you can imagine, if you've been in those situations, how the conversation went with the new baby there in the, in the carrier. And all the mothers began to tell their war stories. They began to compare their notes and nurses and delivery rooms, and you could watch around the room as all of the fathers, all of the men, and their eyes kind of drifted up to some empty corner uh, of the ceiling somewhere. It wasn't that we were uninterested. It was just that we were on the outside. We, we couldn't tell you the first thing about what a contraction actually feels like. And so we didn't have much to say, but I've been privy to enough of those conversations uh, over the last seven and a half years, and perhaps you have as well, to know how much mothers love to talk about these sorts of things. There's something unifying, it seems, about speaking of those moments that only mothers know. There's a camaraderie in, in discussing the struggles and the joys of childbirth, or at least that's what I've been told. Now, uh, there is, I think, some of that in Mary's journey into Judea. Think about it. Mary is running to find and to talk to the only woman who will have some small inkling of what it is she's experiencing. She goes on a three-day journey into the hill country as a, a newly pregnant virgin young girl. And after three days, she finds her cousin, her relative, Elizabeth, and the two women are united. And even though they are separated by decades and geography, even though they're separated by two trimesters, they are gathered together in the joy of motherhood. And in one sense, they share that experience, the joy of pregnancy and motherhood and expectancy. They share that experience with countless other mothers throughout history. They could sit on some level with any of the mothers in our congregation and compare notes with you. But of course, the circumstances of these two women is utterly unique. Very few women have been where Elizabeth is, where we find her in this, in this section. 
I can think of maybe a handful of mothers in uh, the Old Testament. Maybe Sarah. Maybe Rebecca. Maybe uh, the mother of Samson. Women whose barren wombs have been opened by the power of God. Very few women know what Elizabeth is going through. And no one, and I mean no one, has experienced what Mary is experiencing. To have conceived as a virgin by the miracle of the Spirit. No other woman in all of history has heard that angelic voice speak into her ear, your son will be called the Son of the Most High. And of all of the women in the history of motherhood, this meeting is unique. And so what do you do? What do you do and what do you speak of when no one else alive has experienced what you're experiencing? What do you discuss when there is no parallel to the pregnancy that you have been gifted by the Lord? Well, what we find is that these women speak of something that is common not only to mothers but to every believer. These women begin to speak of the mercy of the Lord. Something that only those who have experienced it can really know and can speak about with, with any sort of uh, experiential background. They begin to speak of God's mercy and their arms embrace and their hearts are full and their mouths rejoice together in the Lord who regards the lowly. You haven't experienced exactly what these women have experienced. You may never have been pregnant, you may not even be a woman, and yet the theme of their song and their praise fills every believer's heart. And so today, I hope, with God's help, we are going to learn from these godly women, to learn from their experience, and to see something of the Lord who regards the lowly. Now, there are two lessons that I'd like for us to learn today, uh, one in that first section and the other from the Magnificat. Two lessons. One lesson is a lesson about our faith. And the other lesson is a lesson about God's mercy. And we find the first one in the visitation, and it is the lesson that our faith grows through fellowship. This is our first point today, that our faith grows through fellowship. Now, in these opening verses, we find that Mary uh, has gone after Gabriel's visit, and it says that she runs with haste. She went with haste into the hill country uh, to find Elizabeth. Now, if that language sounds Christmassy, and familiar, it just might be that you're thinking of certain poor shepherds in fields where they lay, who show up in the very next chapter of Luke. Uh, you remember in chapter 2, there is the angelic vision, and the angels surround those lowly shepherds outside of Bethlehem, and they proclaim to them that the wonder of wonders has happened. The, the everlasting Father has sent His Son into the world. The Savior has been born, and there's something for you, there is a sign that you can see and go and see this babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And it tells us in chapter 2, verse 16, and they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph. Well, the scene here is similar. Several weeks ago, two weeks ago, we heard Mary puzzled by the details of Gabriel's announcement and she asked, how exactly will this be because we know the way that things work and she's puzzled but the Gabriel the angel uh, responds to her something amazing has happened there's something that you can go and see if you would like Elizabeth in her old age has conceived and so Elizabeth became a sign for Mary a signal of the power of God and so like the shepherds who would would go after her Mary went with haste 
to see the thing that the Lord had done, to put her eyes on silver-haired Elizabeth with wrinkled hands and a baby bump. It's the kind of thing you would never expect to see in a million years, and yet there it is, and she goes, and she goes with haste to find Elizabeth. Now, isn't it interesting also that Mary uh, is Elizabeth's first visitor? Remember back in chapter 1, verse 24, it tells us, uh, after these days, uh, Zechariah's wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. Now, the scholars tell us that there's, there's no uh, known uh, cultural mandate for that. There's no sort of social taboo in Judea that says that if you're a pregnant woman, you have to be in seclusion and no one can see you. There, there's no uh, known reason why she would keep herself hidden. And yet for five months, Elizabeth is in seclusion. And perhaps the, the village women came calling. Perhaps they had heard some of the rumors. Is it true? Elizabeth, really? Who knows? Maybe they were turned away and, and, uh, and Elizabeth isn't taking any visitors right now. But six months later, Mary shows up. And we wonder, what was Elizabeth doing in all of that time? Why was she all alone? Is she socially awkward? Is she embarrassed? Or maybe she was just waiting. Maybe she was just waiting to speak and to share her joy with somebody who gets it. Waiting for somebody who will rejoice with her instead of gawk at her. Waiting to pour out praise with a sister who knows what it is to be chosen and blessed and drawn into a miracle. And so at the first sound of Mary's voice, the spirit fills and the baby leaps and these two women stand rejoicing together in the Lord. And they grow together in faith in what the Lord has done. Mary stays for three months rejoicing together with Elizabeth, speaking together of what the Lord is doing. She stays so long that by the time she goes back to Nazareth, she's beginning to show and no one will question what's going on with Mary. Everyone will know when she comes walking back into her home village. And yet she stays in fellowship and communion with her cousin, her relative, Elizabeth. And they grow together in the Lord. Now, the, the specifics of this meeting are certainly unique. This is, this is a moment in uh, salvation history that's not going to be uh, repeated. This is not the same sort of thing that happens every day. And yet, there are some elements of the meeting between these two believing women that is common uh, to the way that believers like you and I grow together uh, in, in faith as we encourage one another. Right, two things I want you to see in this meeting, two ways that they're growing. They're growing through a confirmation and they're growing through a benediction. There are a few confirmations in this passage. There's a confirmation for Elizabeth, firstly. John, it says, uh, leaps for joy, verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, you mothers, you can remember back, and you can maybe discern the difference between a flutter and a kick, or a turn and a roll. Well, this is none of these. The word is leaping. Uh, it is used in the Old Testament to speak of the joy of redemption. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. The Lord says, For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. That's the word. 
John in his mother's womb, leaping like a calf, going out from the stall, kicking and bucking and excited to be free. And yet still in the womb, John is skipping for joy because Jesus is present. Still in the smallest possible form, still in the hidden darkness of Mary's womb, but Jesus is present. And this is what John was made for. Isn't it a confirmation for Elizabeth of what was spoken to her husband? Elizabeth will bear you a son and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb and he will go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah already. John the Baptist leaping for joy at the presence of Christ, preparing to go before him and to prepare the way and to make for the Lord a people prepared for his coming. And it's a confirmation as they meet together. The Lord is using this to confirm his word to Elizabeth. He's also using this meeting to confirm his word to Mary. Now, we do not get the sense in in this chapter that Mary is doubtful of what has been proclaimed to her. We don't get the sense that she's skeptical, but can you imagine what that journey of three days would have been like if her heart would have been a little bit more like yours? If she would have spent those three days trying to talk herself down, trying to discern, was that really what I think happened? You know, angels, angels don't show up every day. Maybe it was a hallucination. Maybe it was something that I imagined. And, you know, what was promised, it was something that, that can't yet be seen or heard or touched. And so maybe I should just turn around and go home. Maybe I should just forget the whole thing. Can you imagine if, if her walk was like ours might have been. Now, Mary is not struggling to believe this miracle, it seems, but if she had been, can you imagine the confirmation that would happen when she shows up at Elizabeth's doorstep in verse 43, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And Mary might say, wait a minute, who told you that I'm the mother of the Lord? How did you know? Because I didn't send an email. There's nothing that could go instantaneously from Nazareth uh, to Judea in the hill country where you were. And how would you know these things? Who told you that I'm pregnant with the Son of God? And it's a confirmation. Of course, it's a confirmation from the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who overshadowed Mary, who conceived in her womb the Son of the Eternal Father, is now at work in Elizabeth, the same spirit working in Elizabeth to confirm. And as these women meet, the spirit unites their hearts together in praise and confirms his word to both of them. This is the way it happens when believers get together. No, I I don't mean to say that when believers are in the same place that one has a word of prophecy or is filled with the spirit to a a revelatory degree like Elizabeth seems to be. That's not what I'm talking about. But very often we get together and we're pondering God's promises. We might even be on the verge of doubt. And we haven't even spoken our doubts out loud to anyone else. And yet through the grace of Christian fellowship we meet and we speak with one another, and we hear that the Lord is at work in our brothers and sisters in precisely the same ways that he's at work in us. And we hear that our brothers and sisters have walked the same road that we're walking, and they may be several steps ahead of us, and in their darkest of moments, they have found that the Lord is sufficient for all that they need, and they tell us about that. 
And through the grace of Christian fellowship, God's word is confirmed. And they repeat again, perhaps, the truth of Scripture. They confirm to us the promises of God that we are struggling to hold on to. There's a confirmation that happens in Christian fellowship. There is a blessed and a glorious growth as believers talk and pray and rejoice together. But there's also a benediction here. That's the way that they're growing together. And benediction really is the burden of Elizabeth's song. You see that that is what she has to get out. She has to pronounce God's good word upon Mary. Blessed are you. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed is she who believes. Now what you notice, and if you were raised in a Roman Catholic background, perhaps what you have to push back against a little bit here is the fact that her blessing is uh, is a way of focusing on God's goodness and not on some sort of worthiness on the part of Mary. There is nothing that is deserving in Mary's part. There's nothing, no reason that we can think of that she should be the one to bear the Son of God. There's nothing immaculate about her. You hear that doctrine, the immaculate conception. It's not talking about Jesus. They're talking about Mary, but that's not what has happened. She's not sort of a pre-sanctified vessel for the Holy Spirit. You'll see that later explicitly when she begins to talk about her humble estate. You'll hear that as she speaks of her need for a Savior. There is nothing in Mary that makes her meritorious that the Lord should condescend uh, and, and come and give this gift to the world through her. But we see that Elizabeth's benedictions are really a way to draw Mary's eyes upward rather than inward. Consider the final benediction that she gives. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed is she who believed. Now, why is belief, why is faith a blessing? Is faith a blessing because that happens to be the handle by which if you can find it and if you can hold on to it hard enough that you can get God to do your bidding? That if you believe hard enough, you can pray whatever you want, and the Lord must answer your request. Is that why it's a blessing? Is it something that Mary has in herself, something she's able to do or wrangle God into? Is that why it's a blessing? Or is is faith a blessing because it somehow makes Mary good in the Lord's sight? Or does uh, does this blessing, does faith rest completely in the capability of the Lord to bring about what he has promised? If you've got the ESV, the footnote is correct there. And if you've got the King James, you don't need the footnote because it's there in the text. Blessed is she who believed that there there would be a fulfillment. The text actually, blessed is she who believed for or because there will be. Why is it a blessing for believers to trust in the Lord? Because he always keeps his word. The blessing is not in us, but it's in his capability, in his ability, in his faithfulness. And so she says, blessed is she who believes. There will be a fulfillment. And she pronounces this benediction. And that's perhaps the best benediction that anyone can speak over you. Blessed are you who have received the word of life that God has revealed in his word. Blessed are you when you have heard the gospel truth and you have latched onto it and said, not me, O Lord, but you are able. And this is the blessing that happens when we get together and we find ourselves in Christian fellowship. 
Because at its best, Christian fellowship consists of believers looking one another in the eye and saying, praise God from whom all blessings flow. The Christian fellowship is meant at its best to draw our eyes upward rather than inward, to encourage one another with what the Lord is able to do if with his love he should befriend them. And we need that. We need that sort of benediction when we forget just how humble our estate is. We need that kind of benediction when we are tempted to regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or when we are being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and deceitful schemes. We need this kind of fellowship and this kind of benediction. We need saints to come alongside of us and say, blessed are you when you believe what the Lord has promised in his word and what he's accomplished in his son. Now, before we move on uh, to our second lesson today, I want to make a word of application. By way of a question. Dear Christian, who are the saints who are helping you to grow in faith and grace? Who are the Christians that you fellowship with? The saints who point your eyes upward, who can say to you, not on the basis of anything that you have or anything that you do or anything that you are, but can say to you, blessed are you because God is faithful. If you're married, the obvious answer is that you ought to be doing this with your husband, with your wife. There ought to be some encouragement in the home as believers grow together. If you have children in the home, parents, you ought to be modeling these kinds of conversations. That you speak to your children and you encourage them always to look to the Lord and not to themselves and you help them grow together. But whether you are married, whether you have children, whether you are single or older or retired or whatever your life stage, we could all stand to grow a little bit more in Christian fellowship together. We could all stand to increase our Christian fellowship and to grow through the grace of Christian friendship together. This is part of the blessing of corporate worship. This is why we gather together every week, every Lord's Day, as the Lord has commanded us to hear one another, to hear the voices of the saints singing praises to the Lord and answering amen to our prayers of confession and absolution, to our prayers and our supplication before the Lord, because there's something about that corporate gathering that the Lord promises to use our fellowship together to grow us more in faith than we grow on our own. Martin Luther spoke of corporate worship this way. He said, at home, in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. This is part of the blessing of corporate worship. It's a Christian fellowship. It's the way that we grow together. This is part, it's not all, but it is part of the blessing of the Lord's table that we will come to at the end of our service. The fact that the Lord's table is not something we do privately in our own homes. It is communion. And so we commune with the Lord. We commune with one another. One body gathered together to feed and to drink the body and blood of Christ by faith. United together as one people. One holy temple gathered together, built of living stones, stacked on top of one another. And if you remove one, the whole structure is liable to fall. This is the way the Lord has designed his church. This is the way he has built us together. This is part of the blessing of Christian fellowship, and it is certainly the blessing of Christian hospitality, of opening our homes to one another, 
going out of our way, not just on a Sunday morning, to have an hour and a half where we sit next to someone and we hear them sing and we hear them say amen and we take a piece of a cracker and a little cup of juice, not just to have fellowship there, but to have fellowship in our home. And regular and ongoing hospitality, to invite someone in for a cup of tea or for a meal or for a conversation. Folks, it doesn't have to be a big production. You don't have to be like Elizabeth and put somebody up for three months. You don't have to have multiple courses when you have someone over for dinner. You don't have to have a big table. You don't have to have a clean house. But this is part of the blessing that the Lord commands for his church, to be hospitable to one another because it is through Christian fellowship that we grow in faith. Oftentimes, we have so filled our schedules and established our routines so that we have no time to meet with other believers through the week. Brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be. I want to give you a challenge, if you're willing to take it. On your way home today, by yourself, with your family, I want you to think of someone in this room right now with whom you have not had a substantial conversation Somebody whose Christian background you know almost nothing about. Please don't all flock to the visitors. <laughs> Think about someone in this room who gathers with you week in and week out, who is a believer in Christ Jesus, and yet you don't know what it is that they're rejoicing in, and make it a commitment to connect with them. Meet them for coffee. Better yet, open your home to them. Have a conversation. Look them in the eye. Sit down face to face and say, what have you experienced of God's goodness? What do you know of the mercy of the Lord? How has God called you to himself? You will be amazed if you do that, and especially if you make that a habit of your home. You will be amazed at the way that you leave those conversations feeling that God's word and his work in you is somehow confirmed. As you say, you know... The, the Lord is working in them the same way. You will, you will feel strangely that the Lord's benediction is over your fellowship and that you are maybe even growing together in grace and faith. This is what the Lord calls his people to. Now, as I promised, we've spent most of our time uh, on that first portion uh, of this passage. But I want to press on and I want to see one more lesson uh, that we learn from Mary about God's mercy. And that lesson is that God's mercy comes to the meek. This is our second point today. That God's mercy comes to the meek. Now there are several uh, remarkable things about this song of Mary. Perhaps most notable about this song of Mary, and if you pick up any of the commentaries, everybody scratches their heads about how this possibly could have happened with uh, this young peasant girl who's maybe 12, maybe 14, but the way that this song is so saturated with scripture. There is almost nothing in these verses that is not a quote or an allusion to something that's found elsewhere in the Old Testament. Now, you know, um, computer programmers have a saying, garbage in, garbage out. You cannot put together a solid program if you don't have good data, if you don't have good code. It will only be as good as the sum total of its parts, but the reverse is also true. And that means that this gives us a wonderful picture into Mary's heart. Because the scriptures tell us, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, out of the abundance of the heart, 
the mouth speaks. If this is how Mary speaks of the Lord and his mercy, what is it that fills Mary's heart? It's scripture. It's the word of God. It's the goodness and the loving kindness of the Lord. And there is almost a corollary here. If you, like Mary, fill your heart with the truth of God's word, then God's word will be the influence that shapes you. If you spend your time meditating on God's faithfulness, you will grow in faith. If you spend your hours singing his psalms and praying his promises, you will find that your lips are full of praise. And that was the case with Mary. Her heart was full of the scripture promises of God, and so her mouth was full of praise for God's mercy. Notice what she says, verses uh, 48 and 49. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. This is the summary of God's work in Mary's life. That he who is mighty, the mighty Lord, has reached low to pour compassion on a humble servant. And he works mercy for those who come to him with empty hands. And it's just so typical. It's just so typical of what we know of the Lord from a thousand other places in the scriptures. It's so typical of what Mary knew as she meditated on God's word. As she remembered what she had heard, perhaps the songs she had sung as she was working next to her mother in the home, spinning flax or grinding wheat or whatever it was she was doing as certainly they were in the home and singing the songs, the redemption songs of God's people, praying together, hearing and seeing God's word day in and day out. Mary knew this is just so typical of the way the Lord works. Psalm chapter 138, verse 6, though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. Mary knew this. And we know that she knew this because uh, verse 48 is practically a quotation from one of those stories. Verse 48, Mary says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That is a quotation from Hannah. First Samuel, first Samuel rather, uh, chapter 1, verse 11. It says, Hannah vowed a vow, and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction, another way to translate that, same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, humble estate. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the humble estate of your servant, and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give to him, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. You remember the story, don't you? Empty-handed Hannah the despised wife of Elkanah who had no son, no child to call her own, and she faced derision at her sister wife. And yet she calls out to the Lord. She pours out her soul to the Lord, and what does she have to offer him? Nothing but the gift that she's asking for. She is lowly. She is afflicted. She is despised and humble, and yet the Lord looks on her, and he works mercy for her, and Mary knew it. Mary knew that this is the way that the Lord works. It is so typical of the Lord. The scriptures are full of the accounts of unlikely servants who found blessing at the hand of Yahweh. You remember stuttering Moses, who became the spokesman for God. You remember fearful Gideon, who was the deliverer of Israel. You remember youthful David, who was the warrior king. Or teenage Mary, who was the mother of Jesus. It's just so typical of the way that the Lord works. 
And Mary knew that. In fact, based on Mary's knowledge of the scriptures that we see here, we almost expect her response to Elizabeth to be a little bit more subdued. Blessed are you who has believed, for there will be a fulfillment. Yeah, actually, I knew that. Thank you. The Lord is uh, typically, predictably compassionate, and he has given me exactly what I expected for my years of faithful and humble service. Thank you for mentioning that, Elizabeth. Is that the way that Mary responds? No. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She sings like a woman who is still trying to wrap her mind around the fact that the Lord could come and stoop down and work mercy in even her life of all people. And that's the thing about God's mercy. Is it doesn't matter how much you've read about it. It doesn't matter how much you have heard about the God who works salvation for sinners. When God's mercy comes to you, it always takes you by surprise. Just as it took Mary. And it grabs you and it changes you. And God's mercy puts a song of rejoicing on your lips that cannot be contained. It has to get out because you have to process and you have to think, how could the Lord love a wretch like me? And yet he has. And before long, after God's mercy has gotten a hold of his people, you find yourself sitting in a room full of other Christians for the first time. And you're comparing notes and stories. And you hear words coming out of your mouth, something like, the Lord was kind enough to bring me to an end of myself. The Lord was kind enough to show me that all the good deeds that I was trusting in were really just a smokescreen, really just a, a diversion, a way of hiding my face from the reality that I have no righteousness of my own and that I stood condemned as a sinner before him. And then you know what he did? He, he finally opened my mind and my heart to understand the scriptures. He taught me, and I, I learned by reading his word, that he didn't send his son into the world to teach me how to be a better person. He sent his son into the world because I am depraved and sinful and full of iniquity to the very core. He sent him through the womb of the virgin to be a sacrifice, to take my punishment, to bear my sin, to die my death, to be raised again, to live forever where he sits, even now making intercession for me at the right hand of God. You find yourself saying those things. You're overwhelmed by it. You can't even quite wrap your mind around how it happened, but it just sort of comes out. That's the way it happens when God's mercy gets a hold of you. Your soul just needs to magnify the Lord. And if you find yourself in that situation, I want you to look around the room. Because you will see the eyes of other believers. And their hearts are burning as you confirm what the Lord is doing in them as well. And you'll also see a few other people and their eyes are drifting to some empty corner in this room. And they're on the outside. They can't even begin to tell you what salvation actually feels like. But God's people know. And God's people love to speak of the joy and the wonder of God's mercy. God's people love to rejoice together in the Lord who regards the lowly. Please join me in prayer. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for your mercy to us undeserved, the gift of Christ, the Savior of sinners. 
the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. He took upon Him the sin of all of your elect and put aside that record that was cast against us, our disobedience to the law, and has put to shame the rulers and the principalities and the powers of this world, having been raised again for the justification and vindication and glorification of your people who do not deserve even the least of your mercies. Thank you, O Lord, for rejoicing hearts. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. Keep us, O Lord, ever looking to you. Keep us speaking to one another, even today during our fellowship luncheon. Keep us speaking together, not just of the mundane details of life. Give us hearts to rejoice in you. And as we come together to your table, unite us together as one body, finding communion together in communion with you at your table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. come now to a table that proclaims the gospel message of Christ's sacrifice for sinners. We come receiving signs, tangible elements, bread and a cup, which proclaim to us the body and blood of the Lord, a body broken 